I read a Reddit post where a photographer was saying that every single chair in the bride's getting ready room had like schmutz on it. There was a schmutz of some kind. I don't know if it was like dirt or food or whatever, but she couldn't sit down anywhere. Listen, there's a practical reason to have that throne. Y'all grooms, get yourself a throne also. Are you planning a Jewish or interfaith wedding? Are you lost on where to even begin planning the ceremony, let alone finding a rabbi to help you? Well, it doesn't matter whether one of you is Jewish or you're both Jewish. You deserve a guide. So take a deep breath. I promise it will all be okay. Welcome to Your Jewish Wedding with Rabbi Leanne. Here, I can be everyone's rabbi. (laughs) Yours too. My guests and I will share everything we know to help make your Jewish or interfaith wedding full of tradition and perfectly yours. Well, hello, everyone. It is so good to have you here on Your Jewish Wedding Podcast once again. The weather is sunshiny and chilly. It's my actual favorite. I have a hot drink. I've got a candle burning. What more could you ask for, right? And listen to this. This is true. You will be truly astounded by this, I believe. It is Tuesday. I am not speaking to you on Friday afternoon frantically as my holobakes. I know. Are you all so proud of me? I hope you are because I'm a little proud of myself. Honestly, though, I am getting very excited to start planning more and more of these podcast episodes. You know, at first, when I thought of this podcast, I thought to myself, okay, I'm going to see if I can come up with 50 different different episode ideas. And just that way, there will be a little database of stuff about Jewish weddings on the internet for people to access. So I did that. And that's why I decided it was quote unquote worth it to start the podcast. But the ideas have just grown and grown and split into different episodes. And I'm honestly just floored, not only at how many episodes there might be, but also how much fun I would have recording this podcast and how much comfort and joy it would bring me to sit here and talk with all of you, um, just like friends even though I can't see you and I don't know who you are. Anyhow, part of my original conception with this podcast was, well, I'll just talk about the Jewish wedding ceremony. You know, that's what people, I think, call me to talk about. And usually we dive right in in our first big planning call to, okay, processional, chuppah, whatever. But I found myself realizing there's just a ton of background information and things that I think it's good for people to know and consider before they even start planning. The consequence is we are now, this is episode 15, I believe, and we haven't even gotten to the chuppah yet. I'm just, okay, fine. So the more I learn and and do my own research and looking into Jewish weddings and what questions people might ask and what different traditions there are, the more episodes I keep adding to the queue, okay? So the last episode, 14, was about your ketubah signing ceremony, but It is a pretty common custom, especially for more observant couples in North America, and that is because a lot of people, a lot of Jews who live in North America came from 
uh, Ashkenazi, so Eastern European background. This is a pretty common custom for Ashkenazi observant Orthodox couples or people who came from that tradition and culture. Okay. So I have had one couple observe one of these customs formally. That's not to say that a lot of you might not decide to add it. Okay. So this custom, before I talk about what it is before naming it anymore, oh my goodness. So we are talking about a custom that traditionally happens before the ketubah ceremony that separates between bride and groom. Okay. Here is my sex-specific disclaimer for the episode, okay? I'm going to use the words bride and groom a lot of the time because these were very sex-specific customs that, you know, only the groom had the groom's tish and only the bride had the hachnasa kala. We'll go into both of those obviously in a second. However, it is 100% possible for anyone of any sex to adopt these customs. And so I will try to remember that as I'm recording because I really want to make it clear that same-sex couples are equally loved and adored by me. And I am here for any brainstorming or any crafting or reconstructing of customs that you and your beloved are thinking about performing, you know, just because these things are very old school, very old country, and same-sex marriage is very not old school or or old country. I guess it will be in a couple decades, huh? We're starting to get old. But it doesn't mean that same-sex couples cannot adopt all of these customs and change them as much or as little as they would like, okay? So I will say Overall, I expect this to be a short episode, <laughs> but seriously, it's these things are not that big of a deal, okay? And I say they're not that big of a deal because you will hear how all of these customs are kind of, we do them already in standard American weddings, okay? So it's this is just a question of, do you want to make what you're probably already doing a little bit more dewy? So before we talk about these customs where bride and groom are separated traditionally, it's important to know that in couples who who come from these cultures, come from these communities, follow these traditions, or have grown up seeing them, it is customary for the bride and groom to spend a certain amount of time apart from one another before the wedding ceremony. And I think to only speak on the phone, sometimes not even that. If you know anybody who's done the separation between the couple before the wedding, email me at yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com. I want to know, I think I remember seeing weddings where they did speak on the phone, but it was a very serious thing. And it was done with like a little, it was a little shticky. Okay. It was a little, I guess, what's a translation of shtick? Hokey, maybe? Sort of exaggerated for the purposes of of what it was. Uh, But the bride and groom would each have a shomer or shomeret, which is somebody who was with them all the time. Um, a shomer or shomeret, in this case, is a chaperone, somebody to make sure that they did not sneak off in the night to see their beloved. Listen, I think this is very sweet because it shows just how much the couple was yearning to be in one another's presence. And I think that that's a wonderful way to start off a marriage, don't you? 
that they want to see each other so badly that they bring in people to sort of supervise them and make sure they don't sneak off to, I don't know, where do from just Jews sneak off to? Kosher hot dog stand. I don't know. Anyway, so usually this person would be like a sibling or if they lived close by, um, the best man or the or the maid of honor. Okay. So the moment that the bride and groom saw one another on their wedding day was a big moment. Okay. We will talk about this more when we talk about Bedeckin, which is, yes, the next episode. But this whole idea of having a first look between the bride and groom, you all know, I've talked about first looks before. Maybe have I on this podcast? Definitely on the Bride Tender podcast when I guested for SD on the Bride Tender podcast. The first look is like a thing. I think decades ago in American weddings, standard American weddings, traditionally, the groom would wait at the front of the ceremony to receive the bride. And when she walked down the aisle would be the first time that he saw her all done up in her dress and and whatnot. Okay. So it, and, and you know, you'll see these videos all over the internet, a groom becoming verklempt when he sees the bride coming down the aisle. I don't know what the origin of the American first look was. If you are a wedding planner, if you've been for a long time and you remember the time before the first look, please email me at yourjewishweddingpodcast at gmail.com. You don't have to do a lengthy email. I promise you I won't make you come be a guest on this podcast. Just tell me. It was because of this, this, and this reason. I mean, you can be a guest on this podcast. I would love nothing more, but no pressure, okay? So the first look is actually like a Jewish thing. (laughs) We have always had a first look. And the first look process begins with the customs that we're going to discuss on the podcast today. So I'm going to address Hachnaset Kala first. And I I think this will make the most sense. So this tradition called Hachnaset Kala goes back to a time where the entire community would actually bring the bride to the Chabah. Okay, I found this citation on a website called, and I'm obviously going to link it in the show notes, don't worry. How funny. It's called sixdegreesofkosherbacon.com. So there was no citation for this, but listen, it was the old country. You know, we've done a lot of stuff by word of mouth. Certainly couldn't bring any like documents over on the boat. You know what I mean? So we'll just, we'll take it. But basically the groom would be waiting under the chuppah and would have prepared the chuppah because the chuppah resembles the home, which we will speak about We'll begin speaking about two episodes from now. And the entire community would bring the kala to the chuppah. So in this iteration of the custom, the kala, the bride, has a throne. I'm going to try and find some photographs of, of brides sitting on thrones. You will see a lot of Orthodox weddings include these photographs of the bride sitting on a super fancy chair. Usually her mom's on one side, maybe her grandma's next to her. All the women who were involved, a lot of times the mother-in-law, obviously her attendants, little children, it's very sweet. And they are all surrounding her and celebrating her. So that's because the bride and groom are considered to be like royalty on their wedding day, according to some traditions. Okay, And one of the highest mitzvot, by the way, one of the the most, I don't want to say beloved or revered, one of the most important commandments that you can do as a person, like literally, there's a very short list of people who say like, okay, these are the these are the most important commandments to make sure you do whenever you can. Celebrating with the bride and groom. 
making them feel special. Okay. This is because it is the number one Jewish value to celebrate life wherever it crops up. And weddings are considered to be like the ultimate symbol of new life, maybe even more so than an actual new life. Okay. Because it's the potentiality of that new home, that new life together. Also, we recognize that life in the world is is more to do with the way you live your life and stuff than whether you have babies. Okay. And, you know, I think that that's also, it's also a huge mitzvah because anytime somebody has a Jewish wedding, it means they are looking into their future and seeing a Jewish future. Jewish continuity, remember, we've talked about this a lot, is so important to the Jewish people. So this is a huge mitzvah to celebrate with the bride and groom. Before the wedding, that means making the bride feel like the queen that we consider her to be. Okay. So a lot of times you will see the bride in intense conversations. If you look look through pictures, okay, maybe is onlysimchas.com still a thing? Onlysimchas.com was a site when I was in college and it put pictures of like engagements, weddings, new babies, simchas, uh, happy events that had happened, joyful events that had happened in the Jewish community, but it was like the from Orthodox Jewish community, uh, most specifically. So you would see these kalas, these brides on their throne right? And there's like rhinestones and there's all kinds of stuff. Oh, actually, I wonder if that one guest that Esty had on the Bride Tender podcast does does a rhinestone Kala's chair. Okay. Hello, it's Rabbi Leanne from the future here editing this episode. That vendor is Angela's Fantasy Creations, and I will link her in the show notes so that if you're interested in a sparkly Kala's chair or anything else, studded in rhinestones and beautifully, blindingly sparkly for your wedding, you can contact. Okay, back to the show. Okay, so you'll see a lot of photos of women in intense conversation with the bride, like face-to-face. A lot of times they're holding hands. A lot of times it looks very emotional. What is going on? There's a belief that, or tradition, that not only are the bride and groom like royalty on their wedding day, but that the gates of heaven are open to their prayers, like sitting and ready to receive their prayers, whatever that means. You know, we talk about the gates of prayer being open on Yom Kippur for, for all Jews. This is that, except on your wedding day, they're, you know, they're open a little wider for you. Okay. So there's a tradition that the bride's prayers on this on her wedding day are very powerful. So people will come to her and ask her for blessings for something specific or you know something general but a lot of times if it's her best friends she already knows what they most want in their hearts okay maybe it's to find a match of their own maybe it's for children maybe it's for a better job or a move they've been looking to make or their health or the health of their family anything that's of particular concern if you go by this tradition you have this sometimes i call it a superstition Okay, I have this superstition. If I know somebody who's getting married, I am actually, I have not made a point of doing this. But in the future, if you are one of my brides, ask me, if you're up for it, be like, Rabbi, do you want me to ask for anything? Do you want me to ask for any blessings? Now, this is not like, it doesn't have to be a religious thing. It doesn't have to be, a, I believe in God. But if you believe in putting good vibes into the universe, this is this is like a thing. So I, I don't know actually why this custom is or this belief is of the couple having like a special like phone line to God on their wedding day. <laughs> but I do think it's created to 
the idea that human beings on their wedding day are participating in an act of creation, right? They're participating in the building of a new home, a new family. And it's one of the few days that humans can participate in that in that explicit act of creation, maybe. Listen, this is just my drosh. This is just my little sermon on it. I don't know. If you've heard a different explanation for it, send me an email, okay? So anyway, you will see people asking the bride for blessings and you will see her giving them. And sometimes people are very emotional. You, you know, sometimes you know their story. It's it's a cool moment. And you will even see pictures of a bride with a cell phone on her on her throne, okay, on her beautiful fancy chair. And that's because people are calling her, people who couldn't make it to the wedding. They're calling in to ask for their specific blessings. Genius. I need to do more of that, honestly. So I think that this is like a very cool custom and we will talk about ways um, on the on the second half of this episode on how you can think about maybe incorporating this into your wedding, even if you are not, you do not come from the traditional Ashkenaz culture that would naturally set this up for you, okay? So that's what traditionally the bride does. She sits in her beautiful throne. She feels special. She gets a moment to take in the feminine energy of her attendants and the matriarchs of her family and and the little girls. And it's very sweet. Okay. In a different room, in the same building, almost always it's the same building. It's at least on site. Okay. So there are some of these wedding venues where there's, you know, the bride's cabin and the groom's cabin, different little buildings uh, that are connected to the venue that you get access to awesome. Could be on the same property, not too far away. Okay. You'll, you'll understand why in a minute. In a different area, there is what's called the groom's tish. Tish, I'm pretty sure just means table. Is that it? What's tish mean? It's a Yiddish word. My Yiddish is horrific. I'm just going to listen. I know like some phrases to yell at my kids with in Yiddish. I don't know words. Tish in Yiddish. <laughs> tish in Yiddish. Yeah. It just means table. Okay. So it's the groom's table. And you know, it's a wedding. We got to have a spread. Okay. The the groom's tesh is full of food and sometimes drinks and sometimes even alcoholic drinks. And he and his guys can gather around and have a snack. Now this is significant because there's also another custom that because the bride and groom are considered like extra holy or extra luminous or radiant, I guess, on their wedding day where they are like royalty. They have this special pipeline with their prayers out to the universe or out to God. That uh, they also, they behave in one other way that is similar to Yom Kippur. Traditionally, a bride and groom will fast on their wedding day. So they don't eat from the time they wake up until, I guess, after the chuppah. But I think that at the groom's tish, I think he can eat. This is another thing. If you know or if you've experienced it, does the groom eat at his tish? I think he could. I certainly wouldn't recommend he have an alcoholic beverage before he ate at his tish. So maybe that's our little exception to the custom. Anyway, full of food, full of drinks, and it's the groom and his guys. Now, having a wedding in more orthodox, more traditional, certainly older country communities kind of went hand in hand with becoming an adult. Okay. It's not so much that way anymore, right? We get married in our late 20s, 30s, even 40s, go on to have families and children. Hundreds and hundreds of years ago, you know, people got married when they were 17, 18, 25, whatever. So the idea of the groom's tish is that now he is in charge of his own table. And the first thing he's going to do at his table is to give us all a lesson in the Torah. 
because he's reached the stage of being able to get married. We assume he's like a Talmud Chacham. He's like very, he's learned enough to teach us something even above and beyond, obviously, what he did at his bar mitzvah. Okay. But similar to his bar mitzvah, a lot of times he's really nervous on this day. Okay. So the idea is that the groom would present a lesson in that week's Torah portion or some other Jewish field of study, something that he could leave an impression on his guest and on his nearest and dearest that he taught on his wedding day. If he was the kind of guy who was a great speaker or, you know, really, really smart and loved to give these kind of talks, then I guess his guys would let him give the talk. But most of the time, it is the tradition to kind of roast him. They kind of roast the groom. You know, he starts to talk a couple words into his speech. They interrupt him and ask silly questions. Or they, um, you know, add their own interpretation when he didn't ask for it. Or, you know, they make a crude joke. It really depends on your crowd. You know, you know if your friends are the kind of people to be making crude jokes at your getting ready portion of your wedding day. Zygazant, enjoy yourselves. You, you you do you, right? So I don't know all the nature of the, the uh, ribbing, the roasting that the groom's guys would give him. I've never been to a groom's tish, probably self-explanatory. I am a woman and I've never seen a groom's tish firsthand. But uh, my understanding is that it's to heckle him, of course, because you're his friends and you want to give him a hard time on his wedding day. That's a thing that people do. So many toasts at receptions are the exact same way, obviously. But there's a more compassionate, I guess, interpretation of this custom of heckling the groom at his tish, which is that you understand that he's probably going to be nervous and he's probably going to be too nervous to be super coherent in his speech, maybe to overcome with emotion. And so by his party and his brothers and whoever, all the guys there, by them interrupting him and stuff and, and making jokes and sort of, quote unquote, ruining his speech, what they're doing is they're giving him space to blame them for him messing up, I guess. So a lot of times he doesn't even get through the speech. But uh, anyway, as soon as people decide uh, the groom is done with his speech, or I guess they're done heckling him, what happens is a big celebration. They sort of break into song. Maybe there's a guy with a guitar there. Maybe they have a DJ who is working explicitly for this purpose. They start singing, they start dancing. And at a specific time, right? We are still on schedule here. Jewish wedding planners are working under the same time constraints as any other wedding planners. Someone's in charge of making sure that they begin to make their way towards the bride, towards that bride's throne, right? The singing, the dancing, the excitement, they're all processing him, I guess. They're they're accompanying him in this most joyful, excited manner to his bride. Okay. So he gets hyped up. And if he was nervous, I guess maybe it's another, it sort of diffuses some of that, like that energy, right? So we're going to take a short break. And when we come back, we will talk about what to do if this is not your tradition. This is not something that you're instinctively going to plan as part of your wedding. But if you like the sound of it, how you can incorporate the idea or the practice into your own ceremony.
And we are back. Okay, see, I think that this just actually might be a shorter episode. So for both of these customs that I just spoke about, I honestly think it's something humans instinctively do. You know, I'm going to talk about wedding Instagram once again, but it is a way for people planning weddings to sort of have a window into all the stuff that other people are doing and to ask themselves, oh, is that something I want? Now, I I don't want this to be in a keeping up with everybody else kind of way. And I certainly don't want to make it sound like either of these customs is something that you have to do. It's not even something that I strongly suggest doing. But I do think that it's something that American people, not just American Jews, but like American weddings have these customs or echoes of them already built in. Okay. So I think it's something humans instinctively do now. And in other cultural settings, you will also see this. Okay. I don't know about like too many other cultures, but I do know about a little bit about Indian weddings. And I know for sure in the Indian custom, there's the Bara'at where they do this sort of singing and dancing the groom to his bride. You know, all his guys do the singing and dancing of the groom to his bride. But Indians, y'all, they have elephants or like horses, white horses. I don't know. I guess the elephant is probably more impressive. I guess it depends on where you are. I've seen guys uh, in Indian weddings, Indian grooms roll up in like these motorcycles with streamers and it's like a big shiny and he looks very cool. And maybe his guys are on motorcycles too, but they, you know, they're singing, dancing, whatever. They bring him to the bride's home. And I know like also in Indian cultures, my knowledge of this particular custom, by the way, comes almost exclusively from Bridgerton season two. That there's a gathering of the women, the the bride's nearest and dearest, obviously her wedding party and all those people. They there's a paste made of turmeric, and it's considered good fortune or, or good luck or maybe a protective blessing. I'm not entirely sure. If you want to talk to me about Indian wedding customs, please email me at your Jewish wedding podcast at gmail.com. Okay. So it's sort of the same vibe, right? That there's a certain amount of blessings that we're hoping to confer or associate with the bride and groom. And especially for the groom, there's like the celebratory process where he's brought forward to the bride. And remember, if the six degrees of kosher bacon website is correct, there was a singing and dancing, the bride to the groom counterpart also uh, to the traditional like shtetl, like little village wedding in Jewish tradition. So it would have been actually exactly egalitarian, right? The bride wouldn't have been only sitting and delivering blessings. She would have then been doing her own singing and dancing, which I find very sweet. So, you know, I've also heard some Catholic brides say they're going to organize like a special mass just for their wedding party. I guess that works if your whole wedding party is Catholic, which is, I assume, a thing that happens. So I think that there's every reason to work in some pre-rituals, if you possibly can, between you and your nearest and dearest, like the people that you've chosen to support you. Obviously, you know, the family members that you feel closest to, right? It doesn't have to be sex segregated, obviously, but I think that there's a special kind of intimacy that, at least in the past, was very heavily gendered. But I think that now that we all are on board with like gender as a social construct, and we've been seeing more and more of, you know, grooms having best women and 
people of all sexes and either side of the the party, right? We know that women are just as capable of hassling the groom as as his guys are. So obviously it's whatever you feel comfortable with. And obviously if you're not in a heterosexual relationship, you're not having a heterosexual wedding, none of this sex segregated stuff applies, right? But I think that there was at, at the time, like a certain expectation of energy of like guys being mean to each other and um that's just sort of like how we assumed all males express their support and love. And then obviously on the bride side, something different. Okay. And like I said, you guys have already been thinking, Rabbi Leon, we already do all this stuff. We have the getting ready. We've had the hair and makeup getting done. And, you know, maybe, I don't know, do brides give her bridesmaids a gift on their wedding day? I don't know. I think that's an American custom. You would give your bridesmaids and groomsmen gift on your wedding day. So maybe that's part of the thing, right? But I, I think that there is something fun to really emphasizing the more elevated status of the people getting married on this day, okay? And using it to do something special, okay? So are you the kind of person who loves to share things with the people you loved? Are you always sharing, you know, social media short videos? Are you always sending a TED Talk somebody's way? Are you always recommending books, right? Are you the kind of person who expresses your love in sharing knowledge with the people who are closest to you? You know, then consider doing something like the groom's tish, whether you're the bride or the groom, where you take a moment to say, I've learned this about myself or my relationship with all of you or what a wedding day means to me and why it's so important to me that you all are here. I wanted to share it with you. Maybe it's connected to the Torah portion. Maybe it's connected to your field of expertise or your field of study or current events or whatever. But if you're the kind of person who shows her love by imparting wisdom or some lessons on the people that you love, then think about doing something like a groom's tish. If you want people to hassle you, like that's kind of your vibe. I don't know. I've heard about friends, super nerdy friends, which I would certainly call myself super nerdy, getting together and doing like PowerPoint parties where like they get drunk and then try and teach each other something. I don't know. It's a thing. Um, you know, consider doing that. And and maybe the heckling then is appropriate and you all have a wonderful time. You know, so you could have a bride's tish and do that with with your girlfriends and your and your attendants and all that. Um, similarly, if you are someone who has a really close, deep relationship with each person in your inner circle, right? So the people who would be in your wedding party, or maybe it's your siblings or your close family, and you just want to grab a moment with each of those people to tell them what they mean to you. And yeah, to give them a blessing, right? Because even just telling somebody what he or she means to you is is giving them a blessing. It's it's giving them a word of support and encouragement and a way to see themselves that they didn't have before you gave that to them. Okay. So when I say blessing, I really want you guys not to hear like a prayer um, and obviously not in Hebrew necessarily, but in, and in most cases not, but something that you want to give the people in your wedding party that is more than something with your wedding name and date engraved on it, okay? Something he or she can carry with him or her. Now, this would obviously be adjacent to the bride's throne, right? Where she's sitting and giving blessings, but it doesn't have to be spoken, okay? You could record short videos for each of your people and have a moment where everybody goes and watches the videos. You could write each person a letter and just 
carve out a moment where everyone sits and reads their little notes from you and it's private between you and them. And I say it, I've been saying it in a lot of episodes here recently, but this is something that what the photographers love. This is something you could even do out loud, right? You could go around the circle of all your buddies and say, thank you so much for helping me learn to be brave and sing karaoke, even though I'm not a good singer. Or obviously the more serious, thank you for teaching me what unconditional love means to your older sister or something, right? So that even would be in the same vein. And you know what? Brides and grooms, I want you to have a special chair. I just listened to a podcast where, oh no, it wasn't a podcast. I read a Reddit post where a photographer was saying that every single chair in the bride's getting ready room had like schmutz on it. There was a schmutz of some kind. I don't know if it was like dirt or food or whatever, but she couldn't sit down anywhere. Listen, there's a practical reason to have that throne. Y'all grooms, get yourself a throne also. Okay, make sure that you have a special place to sit, even if it's just like a fancy blanket that somebody throws over the chair where you're sitting. Don't mess up your suit. Don't mess up your dress, please. So have a throne and impart some wisdom or give some blessings that means a lot to you on this day. It is a moment to pause. And in traditional Jewish weddings, now I'll finish up with, you know, traditionally where this was in the the grand scheme of the wedding day, okay? You get up, you get ready, whatever, eat all the stuff. And this would be sort of the first big event of your actual wedding. Okay. No hair and makeup getting done, no photographers, special shots, no first look at your bouquet or first look at whatever or first look at whoever. This was the beginning of the goal of your wedding day, which is to have a wedding ceremony. Okay. It is getting you amped up to a place of, I'm reminding myself of how happy I am to be here and how much it means to me to be surrounded by these people who I have chosen to be close to me at one of the most exciting, most nerve wracking moments of my life. And I'm giving them gratitude and I am letting them adore me. Right. That's what these. Are actually about. It is by design a way to get you at the same time amped up and also to put you in a space of reflection of why you've chosen the people that you've chosen to surround you. And it's important that it goes in this space. Why? Because traditionally they would have signed the ketubah, which is the very beginning of the legal process of marriage in in an orthodox tradition. I don't recommend sorting it that way, and I'll, I'll speak more about why in the next episode on bedeckin, which is the next custom we're talking about. But that was legalistic. That was signing your name, um, the legal document. Now we're getting, we're approaching the emotional moment of the day, right? And as much as you love your wedding party, you know, bridesmen, groomsmaids, I think I just mixed that up, whatever. <laughs> Or maybe you do have bridesmen and groomsmaids. It's like, isn't enjoy yourselves. The real person that you have planned this entire day for, that you love, that you focus on, that you set above and beyond even these most precious people in your life is your bride or groom. And guess what? At the end of this ritual, those people are going to bring you directly to him or her. 
And then the emotion intensifies. That the next custom that people typically do in the series is in the series of Jewish wedding events is the bedeckin. That's what we're going to speak about in the next episode. And I have so much to say about that. So before I say too much, get carried away, I will end this episode there. And look at us, everyone. We are, we put two customs in one episode and we're only in my recording time, 41 minutes. Let's please have a big round of applause for me and you and all of us. Are we, is this growth? Are we growing? Maybe. So before I sign off, I want to let you know that while I was researching this topic, I did come across a website that I have never in my life seen before, and it made me scream. I was so excited about it. It is colesasson.net, I believe. I'm going to put it in the show notes. So colesasson is spelled K-O-L-S-A-S-S-O-N. It's a reference to the seven wedding blessings and the Jewish wedding ceremony. It is a website exclusively for halachic, so according to Jewish law, wedding wedding ceremonies that go as close to Jewish law or as closely adhering to Jewish law as possible for same-sex couples. And how same-sex couples who really want to do things in the most traditional, most legally correct, according to Jewish law way, Lots of rabbis input, lots of text interpretations on how those couples can do that. So please, if you are a same-sex couple and you're trying to plan your Jewish wedding and it feels or seems impossible, especially if you want it to be as traditional as possible, because that's the kind of people you are, maybe that's the kind of people your parents are, you have a resource, obviously, with Rabbi Leanne, your Jewish wedding podcast. I haven't done too many same-sex weddings, though, and you should never stop looking for new resources. And gosh, I'm sure glad that I didn't think that I knew everything about the internet and weddings because look, we have this beautiful website. Once again, I'll link it in the show notes, but this is your reminder, just as it was my reminder this week, that there is always more learning to do. So until next time. Well, everyone, I have had the best time being your rabbi for this episode. I'm so glad you joined me for another little bit of insight into planning your perfect Jewish or interfaith wedding. Until you can smash that glass on your big day, you'd might as well smash that subscribe button for this podcast. I don't want you to miss a single thing. Remember, you can always find me, Rabbi Leanne, on Instagram at at your Ohio rabbi, all one word, for even more tips, tricks, recommendations, and wisdom on Jewish weddings. If you want to work with me on your wedding, you'll find all the info you need at yourohiorabbi.com. Until next time, remember, you deserve the perfect wedding for you. Don't settle for anything less.